The New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The word of the Lord. wondered where that comes from. You know, there's this kind of angsty guy smashing his bass guitar onto the floor with Punk God. Well, that's a mashup of uh, the London Calling Clash record. It's a very iconic photo and cover, and it itself is a mashup of Elvis Presley's first record. And it borrows the font and the style and the colors but instead of Elvis, you know, in his handsome face strumming this acoustic guitar, you have Paul Simon and the basis of The Clash just destroying his bass guitar. So it's an homage to Elvis and to what came before them, but it's also kind of a send-up, a, a subversion of what's going on in pop music. And The Clash weren't the first punk band but arguably had the most far-reaching, broadest uh, influence and certainly some of the most critical acclaim. This record that London Calling, uh, the song is part of, is called London Calling, and the record 
is number eight on Rolling Stone's top albums of all time, greatest albums of all time. Uh, and this song is number 15 of the greatest songs. And I don't know how much Rolling Stone still matters and the fact that they put these before anything Elvis did may be a little bit of a travesty. But you, gotta, you see how influential this band was. And I've been looking forward to doing this song and using it as a window into the Bible as not only written to, but written by marginalized people, by outsiders. Now, The Clash is writing in a very different time than Elvis was in the 50s and early 60s. They're writing in 1979 in the midst of the failure of Western colonialism, in the midst of the failure of worldwide crops, and so there's this hunger that is sweeping the world, even in Western nations, the failure of Western military adventurism all around the world, the failure of Western economies. It's a, it's a really tough time to be a Western person, and that's kind of moving around the world. They're living in the threat of nuclear war. If any of you guys are my age or older, you remember doing the kind of duck and cover drills just in case a nuclear bomb goes off, and I don't know how that was going to protect you, but you lived in that threat. And also, immediately prior to this is the Three Mile Island disaster, so they're living in the threat of nuclear meltdown as well. And so Joe Strummer writes this protest song, but what does he expect is going to happen in view of all of that that is going terribly wrong in the world? What does he expect? Revolution? Does he expect political transformation? Does he expect miracles? He said of this song, which is sort of at the, joins in at the time where they are worried about their kind of existence as a band, and also what's going on culturally speaking in the world. And he says, we felt that, they, that we were struggling about to slip down a slope or something, grasping with our fingernails, and there was no one there to help us. Peter heals this lame beggar, and the crowd comes in, and they're utterly astonished to see this. And they rush in, and basically looks on their faces, and they are saying, what is going on? How can this be happening? And Peter, we don't know what his sort of tone was, but he basically says, well, what did you expect? Why is this a surprise to you? Haven't you been waiting for these very things to happen? You're Israelites, you've been waiting for the intervention of God into the world in ways like this. Why does this surprise you? Well, maybe they're surprised because they're like some of us where we feel like we've been waiting for quite some time. And maybe cynicism has kind of taken root and we, we lack the imagination anymore for true revolution, for this refreshing that Luke tells us about for true change. And maybe that's where the clash were when they were writing this song. Nineteen years is a long time after 1960 when Sam Cooke wrote his classic song, A Change is Gonna Come. And that seems maybe just a little bit naive in 1979. The new attitude that's appropriate is punk. 
The new posture is one of a sneer towards what's going on and towards the cultural powers that are ensuring it. And Luke brings up this history that he claims to be speaking, or Peter does. Luke is the writer of Acts. And he mentions in verse 13 that he's writing on behalf of the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and all of our spiritual forefathers. And what is he getting at here? Well, it means that there's been a lot of history behind them. Moving up to this point, generations have come and gone, and we're still waiting. And so maybe that's why the Israelites are surprised. Maybe they should be surprised. Abraham has been dead for a millennium or more, maybe 1,500 years. So, of course, it's something of a surprise. This is an ancient story to us, but you see, they were feeling cynical about what was an ancient story to them that had seemed to lost it, lose its bearing and its relevance in their daily lives. They were living supposedly by this big story with big promises. But at some point in your life, you just fall into rhythms, right? You get acclimated to a broken world and life inside that. You get accustomed to this idea of living and dying in a closed system. And so I guess the question is, what do you expect? What do you expect about from life? What do you expect from the future? Acts is giving us this little vignette of this one person that was healed But Luke is connecting it to a much larger, far more ancient story that God had been telling since the time of Abraham, that things will look very, very dark, and then times of refreshment will come, verse 20. And you could substitute the word salvation there. Things will look dark, and then God's salvation, His time of refreshment will come. He's been telling us all this time in images and stories and prophecy that He's not done with our world, and He's not done with you. In verse 18, we read that this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all the prophets, saying that His Messiah would suffer so that times of refreshing may come. And Peter is connecting this discreet healing of this lame beggar to that larger story. And in some way, that the restoration of this one man has been part of God's story all along, that God's been telling us this will be coming. And so, from a human time perspective, of course it's surprising, but if you know the story, it shouldn't be. And notice how holistic this healing actually is. This beggar isn't just lame. He's alone. He's ostracized. He lives in a community that views that sort of ailment as a curse from God. You must have done something very wrong, and you were to be shunned and excluded from 
the community. And so he's an outcast. But with this healing, now he is not able simply to walk, but he's returned to a normalized way of going about his life. He re- he's returned to community. So he's healed socially, but he's also healed economically because in that day, if you can't walk, you can't work. This was before the days of ADA ramps. It was before modern prosthetics. It was before all of those things, Dis, uh, uh, disability insurance. None of that existed. And so if you didn't get given things from your job at begging, you didn't eat. But now if he is healed and can walk, he's restored not only socially, but he's restored economically. But then where are we told he's begging? He's begging at the beautiful gate that is very near, but not in the temple. You see, he's excluded from his religious community as well. But now, if he's healed, he no longer has an imprint of God's judgment upon him, and therefore he has to be excluded from coming into the temple. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that feeling? But now he can turn the corner and go into the temple, and he goes, leaping, walking, and praising God. I'm sure he's grateful for Peter and John, but he connects it to that larger story somehow. And he says, this is of God. And he is restored socially and economically, and he's restored spiritually. This is nothing less, friends, than a resurrection. And it's modeled upon the resurrection that Peter and John had just witnessed weeks previous. So certainly they can see it. And this is why even if you are here this morning and you're skeptical about the, re- the resurrection, maybe it's hard to believe. It is hard to believe. But if you're skeptical, I would submit that you should want it to be true. You should want it to be true. Most of you care very deeply about justice for the poor and hunger and physical disease and the degradation of the environment. And yet, If the world truly is going nowhere, if dust really does return to dust and that's the end of the story, then why is altruism better than nihilism? Why pour yourself out for others if at the end of the day nothing you do will really matter in the end? But if the resurrection is true... It says that those causes and those concerns and those cares that lie close to the very best places in your heart, they lie near the center of God's heart as well. And the resurrection tells us that there is infinite hope and there's infinite reason to pour yourself out for the needs of the world because the world is going somewhere. It's part of a story. And it's a story that includes not simply getting people through the difficulty of the world so that they can pray a prayer and then they can be lifted away to heaven. But it's a story that includes God's concern for people's bodies and people's bellies and for unjust social structures, for the restoration of isolated people like this beggar, 
and isolated communities like the leper communities that were told over and over and over that these are the people that Jesus went to to restore them socially and economically and spiritually. And so Peter says, repent. And we all say, wait a minute, Peter. We were just becoming friends. I was following you because you were talking about world peace, right? But now you say, repent? That's, that's the word that people with big billboards put on them. And they're usually talking about everyone else, all of the, the bad, morally depraved people that need to repent. Certainly, you're not one of them. But you see, to Peter, this word repentance, as we talked about last week, it's all connected to the story that he's telling. Because what does he say repent of? Who is he talking to? He says, you handed them over to be killed. You disowned him, that is Jesus, before Pilate. You asked a murderer to be handed over to you, that is set free. And you killed the author of life. So first, he's not talking about the people that those with those weird billboards normally do. Everyone else. that We've got to protect God from those moral reprobates. Everyone besides us. He's passing judgment on his own people. On people who murdered someone with religious justification. Isn't that the right word to say to them? Repent of using religion to control and to manipulate and murder people? So certainly it's got to be appropriate. But then secondly, the crucifixion is an event of rank injustice. The guilty go free while the innocent are punished. And that's a target of a lot of positive social protests today against people acting inhumanely towards one another. And friends, repentance involves having a holy discontent for that happening near us and far away from us. It involves having a holy discontent with a world that allows that to happen, a world that is moving in directions that are away from God's dreams for the world. So repentance does lead to world peace, in a sense. But then third, who's passing judgment? Who's rendering this judgment? Well, it's, it's Peter. He's implicated in his own indictment because he abandoned Jesus. He denied him and ran and hid, and he's been restored, and he's been forgiven. He's met God in his moment where he was in his absolute worst. And God received him and embraced him and restored him. He's met him at his absolute worst and he's found God to be merciful. And what this story tells us is that there is a God who speaks. There is a God who is alive. There's a God who speaks the world into existence There's a God who speaks you into existence. And this God speaks grace over you. He embraces you in your worst. 
you killed the author of life, and yet, and yet it's not the end of the story. Jesus' arrest and his death, it must have felt absolutely apocalyptic to Peter and John and Luke and all of those who had pinned their hopes on him. The world was coming to an end. Their hopes were dashed, and the world was even further off its axis than before. And London Calling describes a world like that. And this song is very different from sort of the frenzied, raw, brash songs that had come before in the Clash's catalog. And if you listen to this record, you wonder, is this even punk? There's a lot of ska, reggae stuff going on. It's very different. And this song in particular is written in a minor key, which is very different from much of what the Clash had done. They'd rarely used that before. It's almost dirge like. It's almost a funeral for the world. The ice age is coming, the sun zooming in, meltdown expected, the wheat's growing thin. Engines stop running, but I have no fear because London is drowning and I live by the river. What is Joe Strummer saying? He's saying that things are terrible, but I have no fear because I live down by the river, and when the river floods, I'm going to be the first to drown. It's complete resignation. Or is it? The title, London Calling, do you know where that comes from? It comes from the way that the BBC would announce its broadcast back during World War II. And every broadcast would begin with, this is London Calling. Because the BBC was this worldwide service that went everywhere. This is London calling from where? From London, from the center of the free world. Into where? Occupied territory. It's a nod to the possibility that something can change. There's a glimmer of hope. He's resigned And is almost happy to live by the Thames because when the end comes and the river floods, he'll be the first to go and he doesn't have to live through it. But on the other hand, there's this hope that maybe peace can come from somewhere. There's a reason, in other words, to protest. Because if the world isn't going anywhere, why protest? Why care? He writes this song not as an end, but as a beginning. And ironically, it's in their disillusionment, in their disenchantment, that they can open a window for hope. It leads him finally not to resignation, to nihilism, but for Peter, it leads him to a holy unrest with the way things are, a holy disenchantment with the world as it is. And that's the very thing that opens a window for hope. And it starts, first of all, with everyone in this room, including myself, with the remembrance, with the promise, with clinging to the fact that no one has ever repented and found a void. No one has ever turned to God in repentance and found anything but Jesus. Because Jesus, you see, turned to God and He found a void. 
he turned to God and he found rejection, absorbing it all, all of us and all of our evil and all of everything that's wrong with the world so that times of refreshing may come, so that when you turn to God, you don't receive a void. You don't receive rejection, but you receive embrace. And the promises of verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do pray, would you come again, come into our world, remake us, give us a reason to hope, let us not fall into a place of resignation or bare nihilism, but let us walk into this new week, maybe not believing it fully, maybe not completely transformed, but let there be a seed of resurrection planted in our lives and in our workplaces, in our families, in our schoolrooms. In every place that we find ourselves this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.